0: A heads up for listeners, this episode contains discussion about anti-fat bias, calorie counts, and weight numbers. If those discussions might be hard to hear, feel free to skip this one and catch up with the podcast next week.
1: Obesity researchers, with the very rarest of exceptions, have conceived of their work as elucidating the psychological, genetic, and physiological determinants of eating behavior. They've assumed, without justification, that what they observed translated directly to the excessive accumulation of fat in fat tissue. Ask a simple question, as I have as a journalist, like, why is it some of us fatten easily and some of us don't, just as some breeds of livestock fatten easily and others don't? And obesity researchers can't answer it because, curiously enough, that's not what they study. The concept that obesity is essentially an energy balance disorder, a problem of calories in and calories out, is, quote, the number one concept that starts everything, a researcher once told me. To question this belief is to be accused, as I have been, of magical thinking, of believing that the laws of physics don't hold for humans.
0: That was Gary Taubes reading from his first opinion essay, How a Fatally, Tragically Flawed Paradigm Has Derailed the Science of Obesity. Gary is a science and health journalist, author, and co-founder of the Nutrition Science Initiative. Joining us is Nick Galino, who has followed Gary's writing while on his own journey with health. The two finally met when Nick was in law school and became friends. Nick now runs a telemedicine company dedicated to treating addiction. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor.
2: Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, Chief Operating Officer at STAT, and I'm here with human resources expert Emerson Foster. He's the head of HR for the U.S. Business Unit at Takeda Pharmaceuticals. Emerson, I know you're committed to fostering diversity, equity, and inclusion at Takeda and across the biopharmaceutical industry. Could you talk a little bit about what industry leaders can do to advance a more inclusive environment? Thanks, Angus. At Takeda, building and maintaining trust is critical to our culture of inclusion, learning, and curiosity. We do this in a number of ways, from enabling a workforce that's as diverse as the communities and patients we serve, to ensuring employees can live their purpose and speak up while confident that others will listen. Establishing that foundation of trust can help us achieve greater health equity and balanced representation. It's clear we're making important progress, though our journey has just begun. Thanks, Emerson. For more information, visit Takeda.com. That's T-A-K-E-D-A.com.
0: Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion. Stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. It's great to talk with you both, Gary and Nick. It's great to be here. Thank you, Pat. Thanks for having me. So uh, tell me again, how did you two meet? Or how do you know each other?
2: You want to take this one, Gary, or should I?
1: Uh, You can do it, Nick.
2: (laughs) Okay. Uh, So... Gary and I first met in person, um, my first year of law school, I was a chair of the food law society or one of the chairs of the food law society at Yale. And I reached out to him cause we were having speakers pretty regularly. Most of whom were talking about, you know, kind of urban gardens and, and things that I felt were a little bit more, um, uh, I'd say small in scale than, than Gary's work. And I thought that we would benefit from his presence. So I reached out and he was coming to speak at the Yale Endocrine Society. Um, and we ended up grabbing dinner and have been um, in contact since.
1: We've also done some hiking together in Berkeley. So.
2: That is true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was, I, yeah, that, that, from then on, we became hiking buddies and, and Gary's been giving me a run for my money ever since. But, you know, I do my, do my best to keep up. I wish. <laughs>
0: Nick, how come, in what way was Gary's work um, important for what you were thinking about and working on at the time, either professionally or personally?
2: Yeah, so that's how I met Gary. But my familiarity with his work um, began, I'd say, five or so years before then. Um, I I was morbidly obese as a kid uh, and as a teen. Um, I was about 400 pounds at 17 years old my uncle was a hair over 800 pounds. Um, grandfather died of a heart attack at a little over 500 pounds. Uh, so, so strong familial history and personal history. And my dad, um, who had historically always been pretty lean, the, the weight mostly was on my maternal side. Uh, when I was about gosh, 15, um, basically bribed me to try the atkins diet i had gone on my first diet at 12. i ate about 1200 calories a day and lost like eight pounds and my dad got kind of worried took me to a nutritionist who said i was like severely under eating and gave me a copy of a food pyramid Um, i was getting teased a lot for being overweight and so i i did that i like followed the food pyramid religiously she's like at your height and weight you eat 2,000 calories a day you'll lose weight gained 10 pounds that week so all i lost in a little bit more um, got really, really cynical um, and continued kind of steadily gaining weight. And then, when, like I said, when I was 15, my dad read um, What If It's All Been a Big Fat Lie, Gary's article in the New York Times, bribed me to do uh, the Atkins diet. I lost about eight pounds um, in a week again, and uh, which was rather a little bit compelling for me, but I was still pretty jaded. Uh, so about two years later, I decided to give it another shot a little bit more seriously. Um, and, and I ended up losing about 160 pounds in eight months. Which uh, I found very compelling, <laughs> and then read Gary's book.
0: Wow, that's a that's an amazing story. So the Atkins diet is the you know the the terrible diet that no one should ever eat, which eschews carbohydrates, and you actually eat beef and uh, cheese and things like that. Do I is that right?
2: Yeah, and and, and I mean I I. I Full disclosure, I'm not necessarily a proponent of Atkins diets, it was kind of popular at the time. What I do now and what I ended up doing when I lost the weight was a little bit different. Um, I, I, the thing that I found compelling about Gary though was his work made a lot more sense to me. I think that a lot of Atkins and diets in general are very sensationalistic. And I, I found his work a little bit more serious and, and was able to engage with it in that way. But yes, to your point, uh, lots of red meat, cheeses, high fat, low carb.
0: Well, before we get started, I'm feeling this conversation is going to be about obesity and the science of it, so I'm feeling the need to define it uh, before we go much further. It, it sort of feels like an amorphous term, but I know it has a very specific meaning. Official sources like the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the American Diabetes Association classify obesity using what's called the body mass index. It's a measure of weight for height. An individual with a body mass index of 25 to 29 falls in the overweight category, while one with a body massive index of 30 or higher falls into the obesity category. Gary, did I miss anything there?
1: No. It's I mean, other than a lengthy discussion on the value of BMI in determining obesity. Yeah, I didn't want to get there.
0: Because <laughs> that's a whole different podcast, isn't it, basically? Indeed. So, Gary, let's get to the nugget of your essay, or the nut graph, if you will, in journalist speak. Um, And I think it's this. The dominant paradigm of obesity science, the energy conservation hypothesis, or calories in equals calories out, has done a poor job of advancing our understanding of obesity. So it's time to pursue a new one that views obesity as a hormonal or constitutional
1: disorder, a fuel partitioning disorder. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's a a good way to put it. But I'm going to use, since we have Nick here, I'm going to use him as an example. The conventional thinking on obesity is that he became morbidly obese because he ate too much. He consumed more calories than he expended. Maybe the problem was in his appetite. Maybe the problem was that he didn't expend enough energy, but it's this energy balance that's the issue, and the treatment would be to eat less, to restrict his calories, uh, maybe to avoid dietary fat because it's the densest calories in the diet, and you know, that's it. If he semi-starves himself for life, the idea would be he might be a normal weight. This hormonal regulatory constitutional hypothesis as Nick was, became morbidly obese as did his grandfather and the, the men on his mother's side because they have a some kind of constitutional hormonal disorder that makes them partition the fuel they eat into fat rather than use it for energy and the way you fix that is by manipulating this hormonal dysregulation and because the hormone involved goes through the hormone and primary hormone involved with uh, fat accumulation regulating fat accumulation is insulin the way you fix the morbid obesity is to minimize insulin and you do that by restricting the carbohydrates in your diet
0: you talk in your essay about the energy conservation hypothesis as being the dominant paradigm of obesity research. What are the as using as close to bullet points as you can verbally? What are the key flaws of it?
1: Uh okay. Key flaws. Well, first of all, the idea emerges from this physics, in effect. Energy is conserved, uh, obesity research will talk about the energy balance equation, which is a change of energy in the system, which is a change of fat, mass, and effect, is, the t- is equal to the energy you consume minus the energy you expend. And so the problem is the laws of physics, this is a conservation law, it's the first law of thermodynamics, and it says nothing about causality. So if you're getting fatter, you have to be taking in more calories than you expend because your energy in your system is increasing. But this equation says nothing about why. So for instance, children, when they're growing, are taking in more calories than they expend. The energy in their bodies is increasing. But this energy balance equation says nothing. Women, when they get pregnant, their bodies are getting bigger and more massive. They're taking in more energy than they expend. Energy balance says nothing about it. These are all hormonal phenomena or hormonal regulatory phenomena. Um, Tumors, when they're growing, are taking in more energy than they expend, but we would never say that they grow because of that. And in obesity, we did that. Let's take Nick as an example. By the time he was 18, he was 400 pounds. So the idea is that the reason he became morbidly obese is because he couldn't restrict his diet such that he didn't store 100 calories of fat a day. That's a very small amount. For somebody who gains, who's just 30 pounds overweight might gain a pound a year over 30 years. That's 10 calories a day. So not only are these tiny numbers, not only do they imply that to, to maintain energy balance, to stay lean, you have to balance perfectly the calories you consumed, the calories you expend to better than one bite of food a day, 10 calories a day. But they also imply that anyone who became obese couldn't do that. And because the energy balance, energy conservation thinking doesn't include any discussion of the regulation of fat storage or metabolism, which is the next point I'll get to, the assumption is that people who are obese can't restrain themselves from gaining 10 or 20 calories of fat a day. does it also mean that
0: somebody like me, I'm on the, I'm on the twig side of the equation, um, does it mean like somebody like me that I'm somehow magically perfectly matching my food intake with my, uh, my activity? That's Even though it, I don't what, think
1: about either? That's what it means. It basically means you're magically, perfectly matching your intake to your expenditure, doing it day after day, week after week in an environment that provides a relatively enormous amount of food. And that while you can do it, your friends and relatives and people like Nick Galino and me in my past could not do it. But there's no other explanation other than we couldn't balance end. That's a behavior. So their fat shaming is built into this energy balance hypothesis. There's no way to avoid it. One of the
0: things that's fascinated me about this whole subject is, so if you have 20 pounds of fat that you're carrying around, you've got 70,000 calories sitting, waiting to be used,
1: that's enough to keep you powered for a month, but yet... You're still hungry. From the hormone, the other way to ask it is to just say, why doesn't my body tap into these 70,000 calories I have stored? Yeah, I wake up in the morning, why don't I eat breakfast instead of just letting my fat feed my body, which is what that fat is there for. So that's a hormonal, uh, that's, a, that's a, a question that you can only answer if you're paying attention to how the fat you've stored is regulated kept in your body, how it's mobilized for fuel, how your lean tissue, your muscles, and your organs choose to use it for fuel. So another problem with this energy balance thinking. So I point this out between the 1930s and the 1960s, researchers studying fat storage and fat metabolism basically did an enormous amount of work elucidating how we control the fat we store how we move it around our bodies how we burn it for fuel when we burn it for fuel and what regulates all of that and that was worked out pretty well by the 1960s but the belief in that obesity is caused by eating too much this energy conservation idea meant the obesity researchers themselves didn't pay attention to it so we had a A situation in which researchers studying excess fat accumulation, obesity, were paying no attention to the science that was being elucidated of fat accumulation itself, as though the two had nothing in common. And one of the arguments of my essay is that that's simply unjustifiable. And that any theory of obesity, of excess fat accumulation, has to pay attention to the science of what regulates fat accumulation. It just, can't just say, look, we eat too much or we exercise too little. Or, as I mentioned in the excerpt, obesity researchers spend a lot of time studying eating behavior. In fact, that's effectively all they do. And then they just assume that somehow well, how much we eat communicates to how much we that we store. And we've known since roughly the late 1930s that that isn't true.
0: One of the points that you make about this energy conservation hypothesis, which you don't agree with, um, and we'll come back to why in a second, is that it also puts the onus, it, it, it makes being overweight a personality flaw. Um, it's something that you do. Nick, when you were growing up, did that affect you?
2: Yeah, certainly. I, I mean, I think it's it's one of the things that, that I, I find a little troubling about even current rhetoric around weight gain and weight loss is I think it's just this incredible abdication by the medical community of responsibility for what is functionally a medical issue, right? I, I mean, there are very few conditions where if you go to a doctor's office there's that kind of blame put on you. Right. And, and I think for me in particular, one thing that I was particularly sensitive to is this implication that I I was somehow, you know, more self-indulgent than my friends. I ate the same as my friends. Right. I I actually was very careful too, because when you're fat and you're mocked for being fat, you're very aware of what other people are eating. And now I eat a lot more around other people than I ever did then. Right. And, and I think that, this kind of implication of moral turpitude is something that that deeply affects you. And what I find particularly ironic is here I was, this person who was supposed to just have, you know, very poor willpower. And the way that I eat now, which people, you know, much more commonly remark on as like requiring so much willpower, I find significantly easier than controlling my eating when I was heavy. I mean, I think what's lost in a lot of this is that people who are truly obese, are spending a lot more willpower on what they're eating than lean people, right? People frankly like you, Patrick. And if you'll permit me a very brief anecdote, I've talked to Gary about this because one of the most kind of heart-wrenching things I've seen about this was there was a Katie Corrick documentary on Netflix, The Name's Escaping Me. Um, and they have this little girl, she's like 12 years old and, and she's very heavy and they follow her. And she goes and she like goes to the pool, I think like a couple times a week and swims like miles like just for hours she's swimming and she's super heavy and there's this like just heartbreaking scene she's 12 years old and she's just crying cuz she can't lose weight and like as someone who has been that heavy like the amount of effort required to swim that much when you're that heavy is hard to comprehend for people who are lean like when i first started losing weight i would walk like a mile a day and it was i mean it felt herculean <laughs> you know what i mean like it was hard mm. and and, and so I think that this, like, implication that these people are in any way, you know, have a failure of willpower or just, like, don't want to be thin is is just wrong. And if you've ever been heavy, you know that. So
0: let's pivot to the other idea that, that you and a group of, I believe it was 16 uh, nutrition researchers – laid out in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition last week. So where do you think that obesity research should pivot toward?
1: Okay, so that paper in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, and I want to add that among these 16 co-authors, the primary author was David Ludwig, who's a professor at Harvard Medical School and the Harvard School of Public Health. And the argument is, uh, first of all, that that the energy balance thinking that we that has completely dominated obesity research. It is, in effect, the central dogma of obesity science is meaningless. It's tautological, as we said, and it explains virtually nothing, and it has to be put aside. And in this case, they're using a we are using a subset of this hormonal regulatory hypothesis, a sub-hypothesis, which is, as I mentioned, the storage of fat in the human body is dominated, regulated uh, primarily, or the dominant hormone regulating it is insulin, and we secrete insulin primarily in response to the carbohydrates in our diet. So, this idea is called the carbohydrate-insulin model. It's... Uh, quite literally a different paradigm, a different way of thinking about obesity, where you don't think of it as caused by eating too much and exercising too little, but as the carbohydrates that we consume, the quantity and, and the quality primarily, creating a hormonal milieu in the human body that fosters fat accumulation. And in some of us, it's you know dramatic, uh, where the end result is morbid obesity. In some of us, it's just a pound a year. Um, But those of us who struggle with our weight by this thinking have to restrict the carbohydrates that we eat, not the quantity of food. Nick, was that
0: easy for you or difficult for you to make a change in that direction when you were a kid?
2: Uh, Yeah, great great question. Um, And I've remarked this to Gary before (laughs) is uh, it's a lot easier than being 400 pounds as a 17 year old. I can tell you that much. Um, I, I think the thing. So I I generally avoid talking about my diet because I think that people tend to think that everyone should do the same thing. But I, I as you could probably imagine, eat very low carb currently. Um, and one of the things a lot of people, I was just at a wedding recently with some friends from law school and everyone's like, oh, wow, like how long have you been doing this? You know, like you've been doing this for so long, like how do you do it? And the thing that they don't see is they, they don't see what it feels like to wake up every day and weigh 400 pounds.
0: You sound like, oh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but... You sound like an outlier in terms of, of weight loss that I read and hear about so many people who desperately want to lose weight and try and it doesn't work and they're off and they try again and sometimes just give up.
2: I, I'm sure Gary knows the numbers better than I do, but there's um, th- this online database. I haven't looked at it in years for people who have lost, I think, more than 50 pounds and kept it off. Oh, um, well, the weight registry. That's the one. Yeah. yeah, And and um, the numbers, I think, last time I saw them were, were vanishingly small of the amount of people who lose weight and are able to successfully keep it off. So I, I've been about 11 years now that, that I've lost the weight. And I, and I do think you know, but by, by all accounts, I will say that I, I am an outlier. But I think that has a lot more to do with the current state of obesity research and treatment than it does have anything to do with with me as a person.
0: I can't imagine how frustrating it must be to follow what you think is a healthy diet, exercise more, do do what is right, and not lose weight.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I think that alone is pretty frustrating, and then. You know saddled on top of that, like I said, is the societal perception that if you're doing that, it's because oh, he must be cheating right or like oh, he actually isn't doing this and and it's it's really like i said it, it it's a difficult position to put people in and but and this it's, is good i go the
1: the physicians I interviewed um they inevitably went through the same experience. So they would be giving the conventional advice to their patients. Their patients come in, they're overweight. I mean, if you're in internal medicine or family medicine and in, in the 21st century your waiting room is full of people who are suffering from the negative, the complications of overweight, obesity, type 2 diabetes, hypertension. And so you say, look, you've got to change your diet, you've got to exercise, you give them the conventional wisdom. And these physicians, one after another, for 120 of them would say, you know, I just assumed my patients couldn't follow a diet. And then I started getting heavier or I had my hemoglobin A1c checked and it turned out I was pre-diabetic or even diabetic. And I said, but I am doing what I'm supposed to do. You know, just as Nick was doing what he was supposed to do, just as we we all do. There's a tendency to see somebody who's obese and assume they're at McDonald's eating french fries and quarter pounders with cheese and finishing it up with a milkshake every day. And most of these people are trying to eat healthier than anyone. So once a physician experiences that, they can no longer think, maybe my patients aren't taking my advice. Now they start thinking, maybe my advice is wrong. And then they luckily with the internet you can find out way too much about virtually anything but they can do their homework try variations on diets a lot of them went through periods where they tried vegan diets and vegetarian diets and mediterranean diets and eventually they get to one that minimizes insulin which is what keto or atkins does and it works again i if there are there might have been people who stopped the vegetarian and vegan because that worked for them or stopped the mediterranean because that worked at them but once you start getting heavier and you can't stop it then you start trying diets that's what fad diets are all about they're what you do when the conventional wisdom is not working it's a, And it's an important point because the medical community looks down on fad diets as well fad diets But they wouldn't exist if the conventional wisdom worked if eating less and exercising more stopped people from gaining weight Those of us predisposed to get fatter then we you wouldn't need fad diet books. We don't have fad cigarette cessation books Right, we know how to quit smoking
2: and also I'll I'll add to that the reason my father actually read the the piece in the New York Times from 2002 I believe um, Gary is he's, and he's told me this before, is, you know, he was growing up always very lean, right? And and he had an overweight kid. And he he said, he's like, I saw you, like, I knew what you ate. You know, I was boxing and swimming and eating low fat, right, for my entire childhood. And I kept getting heavier. And he said, he's like, I I knew you were doing everything right. And and absent that, I don't think he ever would have believed it, right? I mean, he he has told me that several times.
0: Gary, one of the quotes that one of the quotes from your essay that really drove things home for me was was the one you attributed to Jean Maier, which he wrote in 1954. I'm quoting here to attribute obesity to overreading is as meaningful as to account for alcoholism by ascribing it to overdrinking. I think that's a great line.
1: The one way uh, my colleague Mark Friedman, uh, who I always thought was the best scientist in the sort of Nutrition, uh, hunger research field used to say it's it's, it's just um, it's descriptive, it's, it has no explanatory power whatsoever. Again, if you say that somebody is over drinking and therefore that's why they're alcoholic, you haven't said anything meaningful. The other example I use in the article is imagine if economists or uh, financiers had come up with a money balance theory of wealth. And so they were trying to explain why Bill Gates is worth whatever 60 billion dollars, or Jeff Bezos is worth twice as much because they earned more money than they spent, they overearned, or stole, or you know. But um, and if an economist, if you were to go to a lecture uh, about the you know, wealth generation, maybe you want to know how to be able to make sure you can retire and, and have enough money so that you uh, have savings to pay for your retirement. And the, the lecturer, the person giving the TED Talk said the secret to doing this is to make more money than you spend. You would walk out of the room in disgust. But in obesity research, The idea that you get fat because you take in more calories than you expend became this single sort of dogmatic truth. And as I say in the article, all research, all public health interventions, all in effect, all thinking is based on that tautology.
0: You know, I hear people say or write sometimes a paraphrase here, I'm comfortable with the way I look, so shut up and let me live my life. Is that must be a reaction, I would imagine, to everything we, we hear about obesity. Nick, did you ever go down that road?
2: I, I don't care how people look, right? I don't think the expectation should be everyone who's obese is on a low or no carb diet, right? I, I think that that's unrealistic. My thing is, is that what is fundamentally being de- denied to people today is that choice right it is my choice how i want to look how i want to eat but before i did not have that decision right there was no agency in it for me and th- that is i think the fundamental failure so you know to your point patrick I, you know i i very clearly did not make that decision because i could eat carbohydrates today and say yeah this is how i want to look and this is how i want to feel and and I don't condemn anyone for making that decision, right? I mean, there are people in my family who eat very differently from, my do, from the way that I do, and I have friends who eat very differently from the way that I do. And I think that is a, a deeply personal decision having to do with, you know, one's own body. What I do think unambiguously is that the medical and scientific communities owe people that decision, which is to say, you know are are you electing to do this because what i see much more commonly is people who are perennially trying to lose weight unsuccessfully do not enjoy what they eat do not enjoy how they look and exist in this limbo state functionally forever and and that i think is the the fundamental issue
0: it sounds like there are or should be different approaches for different people there's you know the if the if the low fat high carb diet that used to be prescribed for everybody doesn't work. Maybe there should be sort of you know, personalized medicine for for weight.
1: Well, that's one of the that's where we're going now. There's a lot of talk on personal nutrition. The National Institutes of Health I think is spending 150 million dollars on a personal nutrition initiative uh in the uk uh i think that uh, the Nobel nordisk foundation may have given 150 million dollars and that's going to be put towards personal but there are two ways to look at this one is this fundamental question what's making us fat we tend to think in terms of what diet's going to work best but you can't solve a medical problem you can't prevent or treat a disorder you successfully, and you certainly can't uh, stop an epidemic, and we have an epidemic of obesity and diabetes without knowing what the fundamental cause is. So if the fundamental cause of this, not just obesity, but type 2 diabetes and the disorders associated with it are the quantity and quality of the carbohydrates in the diet working through insulin, then anyone who wants to fix this is going to have to deal with that reality. At the moment, they're, they're de- dealing with what they think is a reality that they have to eat less or exercise more. Um, there could be other hypotheses out there that work better, although in the course of my research as a journalist, I couldn't find one that came close. Uh, but if it's true that carbohydrates are the problem and insulin is the dominant hormone, um, then every, any diet that works will have to lower insulin. And the more efficiently it restricts, the more it'll work, the more efficiently it works, the more likely it's going to be to restrict carbohydrate consumption. So all the talk about personal nutrition will have to accept that reality. And that's where better research is absolutely fundamentally necessary.
0: Well, thanks to you both. I've learned a lot in this conversation, um, and I, I hope that you both continue to have great journeys.
1: Thank you, Patrick.
0: Thank you, Patrick. Before I sign off today, I'd like to ask those of you still listening for some advice. Judith Miller, a listener from Wisconsin, sent me a thoughtful email about the way I've been closing the podcast. Here's what she wrote. Every time I hear your sign-off tagline, I wonder how long you'll persist using it. We're now nearly two years into what you call this strange and uncertain time. For me, it's now the new normal, not an aberrant time that has an endpoint. Human history is really just a sequence of strange and uncertain times. Your tagline makes me think of something that organizational theorist Peter Vail once wrote. Quote The very nature of our times is and will continue to be one of permanent white water rather than some strange aberration from which we should expect to emerge. Miller suggested that I reconsider strange and uncertain time and explore other metaphors to close the program that Maybe offer a more resilient way of looking at or thinking about where we are and where we're headed. Please let me know what you think via email at first.opinionstatnews.com. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I would love to hear from listeners. Let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcast. That's it for now. And until I tally the responses to Judith Miller's observations, Be well during this strange and uncertain time.